Good evening. This is the final heart of the matter to uh, ever happen uh, on this station or anywhere else. Over the years, I've wondered, um, as we've gone in the ministry, if I was really doing the right thing. Uh, our daughters have lost friends. My parents and my brothers and sisters have pulled away from us. About a month ago, we had a caller named John who called and said, come back. He pleaded, come back. Come back to the LDS Church, John. Repent, it's not too late. Last Wednesday, I had a call from my wife's state president who through tears also asked me if I would please come back. We've suffered, we've been ostracized, we've, I've just spent far too much time away from home. So I want to announce tonight that I'm going to be rebaptized. Don't do it! You lied to us! Get him out of here! Get him out of here! Get him out of here! Liar, Sean! So I'm going to rejoin the LDS Church through baptism. I'm sorry if this has offended you or if I've hurt your feelings, but it's the right choice. It's going to please my parents. It's going to please my brothers and sisters. It's going to make our family happier. But to take this step, there's a few things that I must do that you have to be aware of. First, I have to agree that the Bible is not sufficient guide. And I have to step away and say that the Book of Mormon needs to be in my life. The Doctrine and Covenants needs to be in my life. The Pearl of Great Price needs to be accepted by me as Scripture from God and fulfilling all the things that the Bible is missing. I must earn my exaltation over the course of my years. I must pay back the crimes I've done as I've done this show. I must be baptized by an LDS person to live with God again. I must accept the LDS priesthood and become worthy to enter into their sacred temple and receive the LDS rites and ordinances in order to live with God. Most importantly, I have to admit by going back, as John has suggested and so many others, I must admit that Jesus is not enough for me. I have to believe in Joseph. I have to profess a faith and a belief in his message that he came after Jesus' message was lost and he restored all these things back to the earth. I must accept Joseph. Did you know I had to agree to all those things in order to come back, as John said? Did you also know that it's April 1st and I would be a big fool, the biggest fool, to ever turn from the things I know to be true and be LDS. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, this is Heart of the Matter. I'm on the ride of a lifetime I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore And I won't be coming back here anymore I'm on a way I'm on a mountain I'm on a roller coaster Sailing across the sky And the only trouble is in wondering why Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We thank the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry, and we pray that his spirit will be with all of you here tonight. 
Standing here on the stage with me are two dear friends of mine. I want to tell you a story quickly. Four years ago in May, I was in Southern California with my wife and I got a phone call. Uh, Roger, this is Roger Workman, and, uh, this, and he, uh, he called me and he told me that his wife had passed. And um, Roger loved his wife very much, Jaleesa. I was good friends with Jaleesa and he has three children and it was a devastating blow. And it was devastating to everybody who knows Roger and his family. Well, you know, the, the time went on and, and he suffered greatly. And we had many, many, many conversations where my brother wondered about life and wondered things and would it ever be good again? Would life ever, ever be uh, normal again for him as he uh, mourned the loss of Jaleesa? Well, a, number, a, few, a year or two ago, I don't know how long I'll let Roger tell you, he uh, was search in search for a good woman, and he has a, women throwing themselves at him. <laughs> and, and, uh, but one caught his attention, and her name is Josephine, who's st standing next to him. And on Monday of last week, they got married. And the Lord has blessed them greatly as a couple. So Roger and Josephine, welcome. I'd like you to just say... Um, uh, what you plan to do now as a couple for the Lord. Tell our audience. Well, thank you, Sean. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful. Uh, you know, uh, God is really a good God. And um, I'm really grateful that um, through Sean's ministry and, and in particular his friendship and with other Christian brothers or sisters, I was able to find myself out of religion and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And um, I'm really grateful that uh, my deceased wife was a Christian and, and she's with uh, God and I don't worry about her. And my children are Christian. And uh, God uh, led me to a, to a website where I met Josephine, who's a very devout Christian. And he's blessed me with um, a new life and a new love in my life. And she's, she's dedicated to the Lord and she's an encouragement to me. And so God is a good God and he has a plan for your life. You, and uh, you may go through struggles and suffering. Just hold on and have faith because God will never let you down. Here's Amen. Josephine. <laughs> yeah, nothing is impossible with God. We believe in that. Amen. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, my brother. Love you. All right. Some of you out there are going to get what I'm going to be talking about tonight. It's going to ring true in your heart and mind, and you're going to comprehend from your heart and mind uh, not only what I mean, but the intent. Uh, it may liberate you. It may encourage you and help you better see the grand panoply of God working through history in reaching men and women, especially today. Others, I would suppose probably most, if record, if history is true, are not going to get what I'm saying at all. Um, you might understand the position, but you will to some extent or another reject it. Uh, some of you are going to rise up in anger. Um, you will believe it's righteous anger, and you're going to take action. You certainly believe it's action Jesus wants you to take. You will believe it's your job to fight against me and my person and my Christianity and, and fight you will. And whether your reactions are supportive or whether they are not is irrelevant really in the scheme of things. What is terribly relevant is what I'm saying true. That is the most important and relevant thing. By the way, I would never present it if I didn't at least believe completely that what I'm saying is true. Please try to remember this. Before I go on, I also want you to um, know that it would be extremely convenient not to do shows like this, to toe the party line, join in with everybody. It makes it easy on the personal drama and the finances and feeling loved and accepted by people who are important to us. I would like to be in a ministry where we could do that, but we're not ever going to be. 
But our primary purpose is to get to the heart of the matter, as it were, irrespective of the cost. And if you cannot trust that we will do all we can to get to the heart of the matter of issues, we are not worthy of your viewership and, uh, and or your prayers or support. So naturally, being human, we have made mistakes in the past about some of our presentations of what we believed is true. And I have had to recant and change and alter former directions and stances. It's our opinion that that's a positive indication, not a negative, as we hope it shows a willingness to change in the face of information that proves us wrong. Traditionally and historically, the masses of humanity do not view change positively and as a result, accepting change can be extremely difficult for most people and the groups and cultures with which they belong. So the longer a group has been steeped in tradition, the more difficult it is for them to change and for change to occur within their ranks. Feelings of comfort and security are just too strong. And the powers that be are just too fearful of losing power of losing their position and their rank. So the status quo is ardently maintained by most groups, cultures, governments, etc., churches, and they are even fought for. The late John F. Kennedy, who I don't believe is a moral hero of any sort, but he was a very intelligent man, he made an astute observation back in the day. This is what he said. The great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Too often, we hold to the cliches of our forebearers. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. With all this in mind, let's try to step back tonight and see how God has interacted with man historically and through the biblical lens, okay? From Sinai, God gave the children of Israel the law through Moses. Two stone tablets. Now, I think it's highly significant that this writing surface were stone tablets because they were limited in terms of writing space. Why were they limited in terms of writing space? Because if the tablets got too big, nobody could carry them. And so they had to be small, and if they were small, then therefore they could only contain so much information. In other words, because they were stone, their size had to be limited, and therefore the information contained upon them had to be limited. Fortunately, nobody is better at being concise than God. And so, what directives did God provide on those two tablets? He gave 10 commandments, 10 moral laws. Now think about this. It's a matter of fact that over the course of time, men, and they were probably well-intentioned, and but nonetheless, they were religiously inclined men, took those 10 commands and added to them, changed them, they misunderstood them. By the time Jesus enters the world, the number of commands had grown to 613, if I've read correctly. Why? What happened? You ready? Human nature happened. Allow me to give you an example of how human nature works, and I'm going to use it using an illustration of a stadium. All right? Like Michigan Stadium, it's one of the largest in our nation. It holds over 100,000 people, about 110,000 people in Michigan Stadium. So imagine that we take a stadium, Michigan Stadium, and we fill it with 100,000 people, and they don't ever get to leave, or at least not for 1,300 years. And they have to learn to get along within the confines of that stadium. All of their physical needs are gonna be provided for, and as a means for them to get along, they have 10 basic rules, moral laws. I would suggest that it would not take very long at all for the people in that stadium to begin to divide and segment and put themselves into groups. If you've ever read Lord of the Flies, you understand what I mean. In all probability, a might 
makes right attitude would prevail with the strongest and the most beautiful and the people who are best skilled in the artifice of persuasion will start to dominate those people who have lesser strength or are of lesser stature or of weaker uh, constitutions. Now, very quickly, there would be leaders who would rise up within that stadium of the different factions. Maybe it would be the people of the purple seats would have one leader and the people of the red seats, I don't know. Maybe even a president or a king would preside over all the stadium. Whatever, it would, whatever would happen would happen. We might see groups break out in wars. And in the name of self-preservation, we would start to see new laws added to the 10. New interpretations and additions of the original 10. We are certain that within a very few generations, idols would start to pop up, and ideas and philosophies would also pop up in the stadium. Naturally, rebellions would occur as the moral laws are challenged. In the end, and I have no idea how long it would take, the 10 basic commands given by God of the people would be obfuscated, and they would be modified, and they might even be disregarded, more likely to the benefit of the powerful, not to the lowly. The rules would always change and morph and benefit those who are in control and the powerful, while the lowly of the stadium would just be subject to the enforcement of their rules. Now, along the way, let's assume that God has been speaking to some of the people in that stadium, and they have recorded what he has to say, and they've also come out and they have shouted from the rooftops what God wants the people to hear. Of course, when they spoke, they would be rejected, cast out stone, you know the score, and you know who would kill them. You see, in the stadium, the powerful and the capable and the intelligent ultimately hold the control. And the traditions that suited them overwhelm the simple words of God that, the, that, those that were written in stone and that God gave for his people to speak. So let's say that after 1,300 years or so, a man named Jesse, we'll call him, pops up in the stadium. And after growing up among those people, like the prophets before him, he bravely refutes what the men and women in power have established and created. Let me repeat that, it's very important to the illustration. He, like the prophets before him, bravely stood up and refuted what the men and women in power have established and promoted in the stadium. Now, what do you suppose will happen to this upstart who challenges the religious rulers of the stadium? That's right, the same thing that happened to Jesus when he became incarnate and he challenged the religious power brokers of his day. They killed him, just like they killed the prophets before him. See the pattern? So even though some stadium dwellers, the lowly and the meek and the sinful that are in that stadium, might like him and receive him, most will remain unsure and fearful, but the powerful will want to see the upstarts dead. That's what the powerful do. Why did they make life hard on him? Why do they constantly confront him? Why did they ultimately kill him? Listen, for the same reasons they killed anybody who came along the way of that 1,300 years and said, wait a minute, this isn't right. They want their ways to remain. They want control. They want power. They want tradition. They want money. They want all of those things of the world. And many of them hated him, believed from the bottom of their hearts that they were doing God's work. They used that as the reason for killing him. Then they even used the ancient manuscripts from the stadium records of the 1300 years to justify killing him. I am certain that some who were in and involved on his death thought they were doing a good thing for God, but I also am certain that some of them knew that he represented the truth, but they killed him anyway. So they took him out on the stadium field, they crucified Jesse. Got all that? Excuse how on the nose this has been, how you know, I know you're getting it all, but it's important. And most zealous evangelical American Christians today completely embrace what I just said. 
they say, yes, that is exactly what happened. Over the course of the nation of Israel, that's exactly what happened. Yes, look what they did. Oh, yes, look how the traditions got involved. Oh, yes, okay? Well, while Jesus was on earth in the Jewish stadium, he plainly stated that he was sent specifically to those only who lived in the stadium, the house of Israel, and that he came to save them because God had promised them a savior. And that's, where he, that's who he was. And while he has among the stadium's inhabitants some men he trained, 12 of them, he told them that once he was gone, for them to write what they had learned so the church he established could survive against the constant pressure from the people in the stadium. It was the power that be in that same Jewish stadium, in the stadium of ancient Israel, that were gonna try to crush the church he established. And he said, listen, I'm training you guys. You go out, write what I have told you. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to write. Send letters to everybody who's believing on me, who's in this stadium, and those people who are able to come in outside of it, Gentiles, and you write and you teach them, and get ready, and then he said, and then I'm going to come back. And he told them once he was gone that uh, he would be gone for a while, and then he said, within a generation, I will be back. That's what he said. Why would he return within a generation? Because he was gonna wrap up the age of that stadium. From the beginning to the end, he said, I'm gonna come back and wrap this age up to bring judgment upon them, and they deserved it, to break down their entire system completely, and to save those who did, in fact, receive and believe on him when he came. Until he returned, he told those who he had trained and taught those who had believed on him that they ought to, be, that they ought to expect to be treated the same way that they treated him. He said, you're, you're gonna be treated the same way. Don't let it surprise you. They, they hated me first. They're gonna hate you too. And he told that to his disciples and his disciples told it to the early Christians. And we know what happened to them, okay? How was Christ treated? He was despised and rejected. For what cause? Speaking the truth in the midst of an established religious order, every Christian agrees, right? He, when his 12 asked him what it would look like when he returned. In Matthew 24, he describes it completely, and then he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. He was clear on that. There's no way around it unless you really stretch the truth. And then he was killed, and those special witnesses who chose, uh, who wrote of him, they sent their writings around to epistles to the other believers, and they said, hang on. You know, don't, you can deal with this trouble and this persecution that's falling upon you. Hang on, here's what you need to do. This is how you should hang out together in the church. And hang on, he's coming. From Paul to Peter to James to John, the book of Revelation, all of them, uh, Jesus in Matthew 23, 24, saying, I'm going to come back. And all those epistles were written to buoy the people up and say, he's coming back, okay? And they, like him, suffered against the status quo. They were kicked out of synagogues, he told them. You will be kicked out of synagogues, you'll be hated and killed, and within a generation, as promised, and as all his disciples intimated in their writings, he returned, and the stadium, Jerusalem, was destroyed. Only those who put their trust in him survived or were materially saved from the destruction. A few things to note about this. First, the stadium, the people, and the promised Messiah were all materially engaged with each other. The nation, the people, the lands, the law, their promises and their blessings, even the Messiah who was promised to them appeared materially in flesh and then returned to them materially in the clouds, pouring out judgment upon the stadium. There was a physical material covenant and the Messiah who came first to them came materially, died materially, resurrected materially, and returned to them materially. All of it a material uh, economy of the law. The stadium, so, the stadium, so to speak, and the Savior crucified in it, chosen 12 and all their writings were materially played out in that age. That's what we have, a record of that. And again, even the judgments upon them for rejecting him were carried out materially when the stadium was destroyed materially. Listen, and their age, 
the age of the nation of Israel and all their covenants, genealogies, promises were completely finished by and through his return, wrapping up the age. Got all of that? Good, because it's important as a footnote to the presentation of what I'm going to say now. Coming from the Jews, their lives in the stadium, 1,300 years there, Jesus walking, his apostles teaching, sending letters, up until the destruction of the stadium, we have a written record, okay? It's a record of God's dealing with them, their age, their people, the end of their economy based on the 10 directives. The record has tremendous value for us today spiritually. Spiritually. As from it, we learn great spiritual lessons derived from their physical, material experience. We have to remember that this is a record and it, that was its primary purpose. We get that record today and we read it and we think it was written for us now, primarily. That is not true. Its primary context was a record of those people, their Messiah, that age, the, his coming and the destruction and the end of it. And we now benefit by it from its spiritual application to our lives, not its material. Now, prior to the end of their age, Jesus called forth a special witness. After he had gone to heaven, his name was Paul. And his work was to get the message of the good news to the world outside of that stadium. He said, okay, this group is done for. I am now gonna take this good news and it's gonna go out to all those people who had no law, who had nothing to do with me for all these thousands of years. Paul is gonna introduce it to non-Jews, okay? And this he did. God chose him because he was a Jew of Jews and he understood all that they believed and he was especially equipped to help transfer everything that they had within their economy to a spiritual message to Gentiles outside of it who were never lived under any kind of law. Paul, his work, his writings were especially important in helping transition this message given to the material people, to a people that would relate to it spiritually. And that's why we have a very big difference between the Pauline writings and what is written uh, in the Gospels and in the first chapters of Acts to those Jewish converts. Let me reiterate this. Paul, his work, his writings were especially pointed to helping transition the message that was given to a physically oriented church and people, the Jews, to a message that would, outside of physical Israel, become wholly spiritual in nature. Completely spiritual, okay? For clarity's sake, the age of material Israel is done. It's over. It ended 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. In Christ Jesus, we know there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no bond or slave. We are all the same now, okay? And we all come to the throne of God by and through a new covenant. The old has passed away. The book of Hebrews contrasts the old physical covenant to the new physical covenant over and over again, but it's especially pertinent in, in Hebrews chapter eight, beginning at verse six. Listen very, very carefully to how God says he will relate to those in the new stadium. Okay, we can bring it back up. It says, but now he has obtained, speaking of Christ, a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant, the law, had been faultless, the one the Jews in the stadium lived under, then no place would have been sought for a second, meaning the second covenant that replaced it. Okay, at this point, the writer goes and he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and he says, because finding fault with them, the inhabitants of that first stadium and their reception of the laws written on stone and the Messiah, this is what he says, God says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother say, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and the sins and their lawless deeds will I remember no more. That's the new way he operates now on the new covenant. This new covenant became fully and completely into effect when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and has not stopped since. But there was a transitioning out of the old material physical covenant that everybody there in Jerusalem was used to, the day of Pentecost, all the way to transitioning completely out of it into the new. Let me reiterate how God describes this new internally driven and inscribed covenant. You ready? The age of the material first covenant was fading fast and was about to be wrapped up completely with the end of the age, 70 AD. So listen how God describes his new covenant. God says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now listen, we know from Galatians that this means real Israel who is made of believers, not just the houses. It's made of Gentiles too. Anyone who's a believer is part of Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will, I, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds will I remember no more. Does this sound like Christianity today? Not at all, not at all. Some questions, if or since, not if, there's no if here. Since God has put his laws in the minds and written them on the hearts of believers, why are pastors telling people what to do, how to do it, how to think, and how they must believe? Why? Don't we trust the work of God that he does on the minds and hearts of believers today? Do we need religious leaders telling true lovers of God how to think? how to believe, how to act and live, if he now writes it on the heart and puts it on the mind, I mean, either God has done what he says he will do and we can trust in him and his promises completely or his spirit is not capable of guiding people and believers need men to tell them still how to live, how to think, how to believe. How did this happen? Once the gospel went out to the world, we found ourselves back in another stadium. Let's call it the world stadium now. The first stadium is destroyed and all of us are in it. Instead of 10 commandments written on stone to follow, there's only two, love God and love man. There's only two, that's the new commandment. And God says he'll write them on the heart and on the minds himself. Trusting this, believers then share Jesus who is necessary, belief on him, faith, by faith we are saved through grace. So we believe on Christ, and when that happens, God writes his law on our hearts and on our minds, we become converted, and he's in control by his Holy Spirit. And churches and believers spend their time sharing the message, and then sharing the, their ancient script to learn the spiritual messages we can learn, but not guiding people's lives to, to say they have to do this, they have to do that, they have to believe this, you have to do it this way, you must conform to this. 
here in the World Stadium possessing just these two simple commandments to believe, to love, to love God, to love man, we started to do what the people in the first stadium did, and it started a long time ago. We began to divide up. It's human nature. We started to fight. We started to use might makes right in the early church, Catholic church going back, that began to rule the day. By the third and fourth centuries, the best looking, the most persuasive and skilled, the rich and powerful started to dominate the less in the stadium. Theology was used to divide and conquer and justify murdering other believers in the name of God. Before long, there were leaders of different Christian factions, infighting, holy wars, inquisitions, and new laws implemented by man that begin to take precedent over the simple two written by God on our hearts and on our minds. And these two basic commandments, love, believe, have since grown and morphed into all sorts of traditional applications. Soon men, thousands of them, took the first stadium book and said they had to decipher it for us for the unlearned masses. Apparently they had forgotten the Lord said he would write his laws upon our minds and hearts. Apparently, they forgot that, uh, that God said that this would mean that nobody would have to teach his neighbor. No one would say to his brother, know the Lord. Know the Lord the way I know the Lord. For all shall know me, God said, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Apparently, when men took the ancient record from the Jews and applied standards of holiness to any and all who would hear, they forgot that God said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Apparently we've forgotten that, and now we then hold people accountable for their unrighteousness. When God says, I will remember them no more. And before long, the new stadium was filled with people who called themselves the Catholics and the Baptists and the Calvinists and the Arminianists and the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists and the thises and the thats, all claiming a corner on what God said, all forgetting that this is out of man's hands now, and it's in his. Suddenly, we are brought full circle to the exact same place that Jesus was in when he came to earth with the truth, and they killed him. And powerful, protective of their pet man-made religious ways, they go to every means to stop, kill, alienate, legitimize, slander, anyone who says, I don't want, I just want to worship God in spirit and in truth, and I don't really care about how you see it. I don't care about your views on tithing. I don't care if you think I need to support you to go to your Israel trip for a vacation. I don't care if you think I need to dress a certain way. I don't care if you don't think I belong in the church because I fornicated last week. I don't care about anything. God has written that on my heart, and I know him, and I'm working with him to overcome myself. Why do I need you to tell me how to be? Why do I need you, pastor, elder board, group, to tell me how I need to be when my relationship is with him? He has written his laws on my heart, on my mind. I trust the Holy Spirit. Why am I listening to you? Why do I go and sit and listen to you? Who are you to be a mediator between me and God? That's what we've come to, and we've accepted it. Think about this, folks. Since God himself has said that he will write his laws in our minds and on our hearts, since God himself has said, as a result, he will be our God and we will be his people, since God himself has said that as a result of him being in our hearts, his laws graved thereon, nobody would ever have to say to another believer, no God, no God, because all will know him. Why do we have churches where pastors and elder boards and accountability groups think they have to govern the people? Why, if God has promised to always forgive us of our unrighteousness and our sins, why do churches keep reminding us of sin and saying sin is alive and well and it must be reformed when God forgave us of those sins and paid for them 2,000 years ago? Because they are power mongers today. Because they are not one bit different than the uh, Pharisees were in Jesus' day. And they have created a system built by men who have taken the simple truths and wrangled them in the name of God. If God himself has truly written his law in our hearts, why do we need to think we need to tell anybody else how they can or cannot live? and or believe. Can someone, anyone explain this to me? 
I have a final question before we go to the phones for all the scholars and religious leaders out there. If someone has had a true encounter with the historic Jesus, the great I am, and they have been born from above as a result, and therefore God himself has written his law on their hearts and minds, who are you to tell them what to think, how to live, and what they can and can't believe to be accepted as a Christian? Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We're gonna go to Josh in Burley, Idaho on line one. Josh, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Hey, Josh, you're on the air. Oh, I am. I'm on the air? You're on the air. Oh, uh, okay. You are on the air. Okay, with Sean. Yes. Sean. Yes. Oh, Sean. Sean. Hey. All right. Hey. I. I am. Uh, okay. I've been watching the show for the past oh three weeks or so. Uh huh. Um. I just want. I'm. A, I'm an LDS member. Uh huh. Ongoing member of the church. And I. I uh, participate in all the activities, the mutual and everything like that. Uh huh. Um, I, I just, I, I don't understand how you've been a member of the church for 40 years and just gave it up like that. I, it, it just breaks my heart. How come? How, how come it breaks my heart? Because you, you, you felt what's inside that church. You can't, you can't deny that. I absolutely, I absolutely felt what was inside that church, Josh? Absolutely felt it. What What do you mean? Okay, yeah. And and why? Why? What are you doing then, right now? What's your intention here? I I don't understand. Well, my intention here really doesn't have much to do with the LDS, except those coming out looking for a church where they can worship God in spirit and truth and not worry about everything else. But if you're talking about the seven years that we did programs on Mormonism. Here's the thing, Josh. Mormonism is a fantastic religious institution. There's not a better one on earth. They are a great institution and you feel good when you're part of an institution and you're called brother and sister and you have callings and you have unity and purpose in life. You know, every group feels good. Their members feel good. But Josh, it's not true. You see, so I don't care how good I felt in it. If it's not true, I want nothing to do with it, Josh. Why do you? Were you a priesthood holder? I, I was, Ken, don't do that. I was. Did you act upon your priesthood? I acted upon my priesthood as I was told to by my leaders and I I gave people blessings in the name of the Melchizedek priesthood, which I held, which I thought I held. And I did all of those things for many, many, many years, Josh. Yeah, I've been, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for your soul. What are you praying for? That you find your way. I found my way. Okay, Josh, let me ask you something. I found my way in the Lord Jesus Christ. He changed me from being an active, clean-cut, good-looking Mormon that was a rat bastard in his heart to a man who loves the Lord who outwardly doesn't represent anything. What's the problem? Joseph, Joseph Smith has done more than Jesus himself, in a, in a way, as for mankind. He has, kept, he has kept the church together for so many years, but, and nobody else could do that. Well, that's part of the problem, Josh. If you are a legitimate caller, sometimes when people say this type of stuff, I'm not sure. But if you truly believe that, Josh, and being from Burley, Idaho, and being a faithful member, I could see how you could. Uh, you represent pretty much a standard faithful Latter-day Saint. I don't think you understand your theology, but bottom line, they hold Joseph Smith up right up there with Jesus Christ, and that is really a shame. So let, let's make a deal, Josh. You're gonna die, and I'm gonna die. And you're gonna die, and you're betting that a kid named Joseph Smith, a man named Joseph Smith, 
who took secret wives of other men and married them secretly and had sex with them, you're going to believe that he gave you the truths to get into heaven, and I'm going to put all of my eggs on Christ Jesus. Now you tell me who has the better bet. Hey, so I, this is an April Fool's joke, actually, that I, that I, I was... Uh, What's he saying? I'm just doing an April Fool's joke here. Oh, hey. dang, I hate this holiday. <laughs> he got me back. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go to Jim in Pasadena. Jim, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hey, how you doing, Jim? I'm doing well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's an honor to finally talk to you. Um, I was a true believing Mormon up until about, oh, about a year ago when I was introduced by a good ex-Mormon, uh, now born-again Christian friend, to the real church history. And as I started studying, it became very clear to me that something was wrong. And as the church, my belief in the church began to crumble, uh, I naturally wanted to be an atheist. And he said, give Jesus a chance. And so I started reading the New Testament for really the first time since my mission, and uh, God started working on my heart, and in my search to know the truth, I found your show, and I, as of yesterday, I've watched uh, all 400 and something hours oh. and in the last eight months, and it's just, I just want to thank you, what an impact you have made on my life. I just don't think, I think you were just there for me because God knew I needed the right person to fully explain Mormonism versus Christianity. Praise God. And it's just uh, between you and the New Testament and God, uh, I got saved last October. And, and it's really true when they say God gives you a new heart and a new life. And everything has just been amazing since then. And, praise uh, God, Jim. Just, I just want to thank you. Just thank you. Thank you a thousand times over. And, and praise God. Pray, Jim, thank you so much. But before you hang up, listen, now you have done what we try to tell everyone to do. And you've done it and you have a personal experience with having your life changed, what would you say now to an LDS viewer who will certainly watch this show in the archives or online or something? Please, Jim, Lord, help Jim say, give them how it worked. Give them something coming from the Mormon church of how the Lord works. Well, it is really true that Jesus did all the work and there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. And my favorite scripture in the Bible has, has become, come unto me and I will give you rest. And for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've experienced that in spades and I never understood what that meant. I never got to experience that as a Mormon. I don't think Mormons get to experience that. Yeah. And uh, it's really true. Read the New Testament and listen to what Jesus says and don't listen to what the Mormon church says that he says. Listen to what really comes out of his mouth, and you'll see that he does not teach Mormon doctrine. And it's just amazing. When, and, and he will change your life. Come, you know, when you come to realize that you are nothing compared to, to God and that there's no way you can get back to him without him, uh, he will change your, you know, cry out, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. He will change your life and give you a new heart, and it is absolutely amazing. Jim, that is so beautiful. more than a burning in the bosom. It's like your whole body is on fire. And I know that's the Holy Spirit. And I live with that daily now. Praise God. Thank you so much, Jim. That was beautiful, so well articulated, and so true. So many people can relate to that. I look forward to meeting you someday, my brother. Uh, one day I want to come to Utah and see your show and be a guest audience member. And I just also want to say, um, you and I are just a few years apart. I'm just a few years younger than you. And while you were growing up in uh, Huntington Beach, I was just a few miles away in Long Beach. Oh. So when you talk about uh, how things used to be and you tell the stories of the way things used to be, I can relate. And I love every one of those stories because it takes me back. And you're right. Things were very different back then. And you are spot on every time you, you talk about one of those stories. Wow. Hey, Jim, what high, school, so I'm, what high school did you go uh, to? I went to Lakewood High School okay. in the Long Beach School District. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, good to meet you, my brother. All right, thank you very much. Okay, God keep bless. On, keep on keeping on. All right, bye-bye. We're going to Frosty in Park City, Utah. Frosty, you're on Heart of the Matter. Okay, Sean, how are you doing tonight, brother? I'm doing well. How are you? 
I'm doing great. I'm trying to turn my volume off on my iPad here, so you're not echoing. Just want to say uh, thanks for your ministry, Sean. Sorry for the huffing and puffing. I love you, brother. And can I just ask, Sean, can you just, um, for, for any of the, the LDS people that we care about so much here, can you reference the New Testament passage, Sean, that I, I, I agree with what you're saying tonight, Sean. It's about belief and it's about love. But I've been a Christian for pretty much all my life, and it was only relatively recently that I actually read the passage where Jesus said, you must believe in who I say I am. So, Sean, would you just be willing to share that passage for all our Mormon brothers and sisters that we love? I don't know where my um, Bible is. And just expound on maybe anything beyond, anything essential, Sean, beyond just loving and believing. Well, a couple things. I'm going to use this old Geneva Bible because I left my Bible in the car, Frosty. So hang on. And it's upside down. Nope. Um, you know, first of all, it's 1 John 3, 23, 22 and 23. And it says this. Wow, they rename all their books in here, don't they? Hold on. Okay. Well, while you're looking, Sean, I'm just going to say thanks again for everything you've done. You're welcome. Praise God. Thanks for watching, Absolutely. Frosty. It says, and, uh, gosh, this is hard to read. This is his commandment, verse 23. This is his commandment. That we believe in the name, and when, that, when the, John wrote that, when you believe in the name to a Hebrew, that means believe on the person. It means believe on that person. Not in the name Jesus, Yeshua, uh, Iesus. It means on that person. Believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. Those are the two commandments. This is his commandment, talking about God, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as Jesus Christ gave the commandment. Now, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, I mean, to the Pharisees, he told them, let me tell you something. If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sin. There's the delineation point. You will die in your sin, and that means you're not covered, and so the wrath of God and the fire and the hell and the distance and all of that. Why would he say, if you don't believe that I am? Now, in the King James, it makes the mistake, and it says, if you don't believe that I am, he and it writes he in there, but it's italicized because it's not in the original manuscripts. But the better manuscripts say, if you don't believe that I am, and that goes back to Exodus, and when Moses said, Lord, who do I say uh, has sent me? And he says, I am. And in the Hebrew, that name means the self-existent one, the one who is not created. Now, when you understand Latter-day Saints, that when Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am the self-existent one, that I am God in the flesh, you will die in your sin. And the reason I clarify this, Frosty, is the Latter-day Saints, they'll say, we believe in Jesus, but really, frankly, they believe in a different Jesus. And they, they don't believe that he is I am. They might say we believe he was the God of the Old Testament, but they don't believe he's the self-existent one. They believe he was created. They believe he is our spirit brother, or bro uh, and, and that he came to earth to get a body so that he could progress and that we did too. So they put him on an entirely different level. So I hope that helps uh, what you've requested, my brother. Uh, it does, Sean, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm praying for your ministry and I just hope all our LDS brothers and sisters keep listening. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. So Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you later, Frosty. Okay, listen. Travis, he says, my wife was LDS. She left the church eight years ago. Just a question on there being no mention of the son. This has been part of our discussions of late in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, there were three cast into a furnace. The fourth man, the son of God. How do you explain that? So I want to read this to you. And I think we have a graphic, Merle. I didn't give you any notice of this. But this is what it says in Daniel 3, 24 through 26. Ready? Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished 
and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, true, O king. He answered and said, lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt. And the fourth and the form, excuse me, of the fourth is like the son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near with the mouth burning the furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the midst of the fire. And so what happens is most people read that and they say, that was called a Christophany. That was Jesus walking in the midst of the fire and even Nebuchadnezzar, the king, recognized him as the son of God. Okay, that is a huge, it's the one place where son is mentioned. It's mentioned by a pagan king. It's mentioned extrapolating that the form of the person looked like it was a holy being. The son of God is the language, so let me explain. First of all, the King James and the New King James capitalize son of God here, but many other respectable versions of the Bible do not capitalize that for a good reason. Secondly, we read that Nebuchadnezzar says, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God, not the Son of God. I would suggest that Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what the form of the Son of God even looked like. How would he know? So, I mean, it's not like he, he, he knew. He was just using a figure of speech. That one has the form of the Son of God. Well, what, the, what would the Son of God look like? It would look like an angelic being, something that came from heaven. That's how he would explain it, okay? And if we read down just two more verses, we see that Nebuchadnezzar calls this being an angel, okay? So two verses down from what was quoted to me, interestingly, Daniel 3, 5 translates verse 24 this way. He answered and said, behold, I see four men loose walking in the middle of the fire and there is no harm among them and the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods. That would be more consistent of a translation with a pagan a king like Nebuchadnezzar looking at that for him to say that son of the gods. So we know it shouldn't be a capital S. The angels were called the sons of God because of their excellency. Therefore, the king called the angel whom God sent to comfort his own in these fires, the son of God. To say it was a Christophany or Jesus in the spirit form, which is what Christian churches will do to kind of give some meaning to it, is a leap. Uh, unsubstantiated by scripture. Now I did consult a number of commentaries and I do frequently look at commentaries. I don't read books on these things, but I do read commentaries. And this is what Adam Clark said. This is a most improper translation. What notion could this idolatrous king have of the Lord Jesus Christ? For so the place is understood by thousands. He says, everybody says this means the son of God. Uh, he gives the Hebrew, signifies a son of the gods, that is a divine person or angel. And so the king calls him in Daniel 3:28. God had sent him his angel and delivered his servants. And, and though even from this small, still some contend that it uh, was the angel of the covenant, and yet it was the Babylonian king knew so little of one from the other. No other mis ministration was necessary. A single angel from heaven was quite sufficient to answer the purpose, which stopped the mouths of the lions and Daniel, and that was cast into the burning furnace. So that's Adam's Clark, Adam Clark's response to that uh, query, and I think it's a good one. So uh, if it was the Son of God, if Scripture supported that, I would say that's speaking of Jesus, Son of God, pre-incarnate, called the Son, absolutely eternal sonship, valid. I and if someone brings one up that shows that, I'll change my mind right here on the air and say, I was wrong. Eternal sonship is valid. But I still maintain we don't have Old Testament scripture that supports eternal sonship. We have the word, we have the pneuma, we have the theos, but we do not have son and father Old Testament of a son-father relationship until Christ became flesh. And I stand by that. Whether we agree with it or not is almost irrelevant. Received this from a local pastor who pointed something out that's important. He said, I totally understand what you mean about not swallowing all the doctrinal ideas of systematic theology, texts from theologians, but please don't say you only read the Bible. You know too much about different views or theologies on varying issues, which means you have studied what different men have said, et cetera. You didn't find out about MacArthur or Martin on rejecting eternal sonship from just the Bible. And that is absolutely true. But let me under help you understand what I mean by that. I don't read theology books to understand 
concepts in the Bible. I will consult on passages what certain commentators, like I just did, have said. I've never read a theology book, a systematic theology book, to understand the Trinity or anything else. What I do is I read the Bible to understand those things. Now, many of you say, I should. I disagree, and I probably never will. So uh, there it is for tonight. We hope you'll join us next week. April 1st is over, and we'll come back and finish up talking about the Holy Spirit in the concept of the Trinity, and we move on to some other topics between the Mormon Christian debate. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light. Till monkeys start to